Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. I'm joined again by Rena Murray, who we spoke to last week on the podcast about osteopathy for babies. And this week, we're specifically honing in on the topic of tongue tie. So for those who didn't listen to the first episode, Rena's going to reintroduce herself, but as a backstory, she was one of my very good friends at school. So we know, we've known each other for a long time. And she happened to be my maid of honor for my wedding like 22 years ago. So we go back a ways, but Rena is now a highly qualified health professional and here to talk to us about tongue tie. But first, Rena, can you introduce yourself? Who are you and why would I invite you on a podcast about tongue tie? Oh, thanks, Mel, for having me back. <laughs> I am feeling old with that introduction. I know. Oh, how old are we? I'm, I mean, I'm turning 40 soon. You must already be 40. I just did. Yes, yeah. that's right, because you, you're slightly older than me. Um, but I love getting older. I don't know about you. How are 100%. You? I'm super yeah. happy with every birthday I get. I know. I'm really appreciative because I feel like I get uh, permission to get weirder. I don't know if your aim is to get weirder. My intention is to every year grow slightly a bit more weird. And I feel like as you get older, you get more permission to do that um, because you care less about what other people think of you. So anyway, I'm enjoying getting older and appreciating the value of all of the wisdom that we're gathering, particularly, I mean, you are gathering wisdom and experience so much in, in your area of expertise, which I'm so appreciative for. Uh, so where are you? What's where, who's Rena? Who's Rena Murray? Mm. <laughs> well, as I said last time, I am a mum, and I feel like that's you know I need to qualify that first because a lot of my journey as a health professional has been um, guided by my experience as a parent, and I am I feel like a reluctant practitioner in the area of tongue ties. It's not. <laughs> Uh, controversy follows it everywhere. And so I'm going to do my best to give a balanced response today. But I actually first came across tongue ties maybe 13, 15 years ago um, with a patient who asked me if I knew about them. And really, I knew a little bit, but had no idea about the world that I was entering into. And that kind of started me down a pathway after I'd done my pediatrics training to become a lactation consultant because I just didn't feel like I had enough answers. And so I was looking for, yeah, I guess more information to help me to support families who were struggling in this space. Yeah. So first trained as an osteopath, then got an advanced qualification in pediatric osteopathy and also became a lactation consultant. So it's quite the collection of skills to be to be sort of feeding into this topic of tongue tie. And yeah, I just it is a reminder that this is a controversial topic. So if you're feeling triggered or upset by anything that we say, consider that you've learned you've just learned something new that doesn't align with what you know about tongue tie. And that's a gift because it's broadened your understanding. And obviously, Rena and I might not have all of the information. Because actually the real true experts in this kind of thing are the parents themselves who, who have to tiptoe around to lots of different practitioners and websites and speaking to other parents and understanding their own babies. So it's quite possible that there's parents out there who know way more than what we're going to talk about. But our offering is to tell you what we know and that maybe it will add to your understanding. So we're going to go lightly, but also realize if you've had a response to this that's upsetting it's time to look inward at why that upset you rather than sending Rena and I hate mail. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the basics. And, and although people listening to this might not actually be currently experiencing a tongue tie, but if you are pregnant or have a baby or plan on being pregnant, this could creep up on you and catch you by surprise. 
And so it's handy to know a little bit about tongue tie. If it doesn't eventuate for you, amazing, you're just extra knowledgeable. Maybe you can help a friend. But if it does creep up on you, it's amazing to have pre-information about this thing because it's there and it doesn't just go away by itself. So what is tongue tie? What is it? Yeah, okay. So I think maybe we'll talk about it in terms of the broader term is oral ties. Um, and because there is not just one oral tie, so as you start to delve into this space, you'll learn that there is a tongue tie, there's a lip tie, and there's also cheek ties. So I suppose the all-encompassing term is oral ties. or And then when we're talking about restricted oral ties, we're talking about tethered oral tissues or TOTS. So you might hear any of those terms if you start looking into this space a little bit. But if we're talking about a tongue tie specifically, when it is pathological or restricted, it's called ankyloglossia. And really, it's just a remnant of tissue kind of on the undersurface of the tongue. And it's sort of between the tongue and the floor of the mouth. And it restricts normal movement. And generally, particularly when we're looking at babies, we're looking at three movements in particular. So the ability for them to stick their tongue out, so protrusion, um, the ability for them to move it side to side which is lateralizing, and then elevating. So can they get that tongue up to the roof of their mouth? Right, which is important for breastfeeding latch to be able to bring their tongue up to the roof of their mouth to actually draw the nipple in. 100%. Yeah. Right. And so then the other oral ties, the, the cheek ones, mm-hmm. how do you know that that's happening? Because that's not related to the tongue, right, is it? Yeah, Wow. That's even more contentious than okay. buckle ties. We don't, uh, we're still working on a standardized assessment tool for those. And there's a lot of debate about whether they need to be released or not. Um, maybe we'll come back to that. Oh, yeah. Because I'm like, whoa, I have never thought to check for those. Yeah. We certainly are not taught that in midwifery that that's a possibility. And lip ties. My so this could again this could be controversial. Back in the day when I first started training, they used to tell us that the lips of the baby had to make this special K kind of shape over the mum's nipple, and that's a way to gauge good atta- good attachment to the nipple. And that if it wasn't doing that, you should flick out the lips above or below to make them do that. I always thought it was weird because it's so easy to flick the lip out and it's as if it's not involved in the attachment at all. And I've since learned that that's true, is that what, it, they're just like curtains. It's just window dressing. It, it doesn't have a specific function. So if the lips are curled in but the latch is great internally, we don't actually have a problem. And that's why I was curious about lip ties about if they even need any kind of diagnosis or management. Yep. Wow. We're going there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The great birth rebellion, (laughs) Reed. You have to go there. Okay. So I was taught the same thing as you. I think at uni, the special K, we definitely don't subscribe to that anymore in terms of breastfeeding mechanics. Yes, a neutral posture is fine. The baby did not have to flange the lip up to get a good latch and seal. It's more about the ability for, yeah, the tongue to be able to elevate and hold that nipple in the mouth and create um, a vacuum to extract milk out. Now, the lips are not probably completely passive in that because the lip, orbicularis oris, like the muscle around the lips, does sometimes engage to hold on a little bit. But for babies who've got really poor ability to maintain that suction or that elevation of the tongue, say with a tongue tie, you'll often find the lips are hypertonic. So they're really tight through their lips. So in those cases, they're compensating and using it more than what they should. So they're using their lips to kind of latch on because yeah. the deficit, an internal deficit. Yes. Interesting. Okay. All right. So there you go. So so don't always necessarily need to release a lip tight in terms of latch. Yeah, correct. I think they're often released at the same time because that's the process of the provider. Whether they always need to be released, I don't personally, I don't think they always do need to be released. It's definitely primarily about tongue function, but it's very hard to quantify how much a lip tie release has added to the process. Maybe it's five or 10% improvement that was gained by releasing the lip tie 
and 90% came from the tongue. We just can't. We don't have studies to tell us exactly which way to go with that yet. Yes. And I've and and one thing that I do ask parents as well is one thing is is if either of them have had a gap between the two front teeth, it could be that they have had a lip tie and then that could mean their baby has a lip tie. Anyway, that's just a little anecdote. And if there's a lip tie, there's usually a tongue tie. So it definitely warrants looking further. But I, I do do a lot of work with dentists and we have this conversation often about, you know, should you release a lip tie if the tongue's functioning well um, in a baby because of that diastema or that gap? And I think the answer is no, it's not. Releasing the the lip tie or the labial frenulum is not going to change whether that gap is there later on and they need orthodontic work. So we, we're definitely looking at, um, it's very osteopathic tongue tie assessment because you're looking at structure and function. And so when we're assessing a baby, we are trying to determine, okay, what does the structure look like? But more importantly, how is it working? And so if it looks like a tongue tie, but everything else is amazing, latch is good, there's no nipple discomfort or damage and the baby's able to transfer milk then that's part of the decision making process of like well yeah there's a tongue tie but actually everything's functioning as it should uh my question as well is about language development later because this is something that gets peddled is like yeah you might be feeding well but if you don't correct it there could be issues with mouth development and language later in life do you know anything about that yeah. I mean, I'm not a speech pathologist, so I want to be careful. And I would say you need to seek out people who are experts in that space. And I think before we go any further, it's probably worth acknowledging that none of us as health professionals are trained in oral ties in our undergraduate training. You said yourself, you weren't, I wasn't as a lactation consultant, definitely not as an osteopath. Um, and that's true for dentists, for pediatricians, for GPs, for nurses. Like it's, it is just where we are, I think, in the field of medicine at this point in time that no one incorporates it into their undergraduate training. So when you have seen multiple health professionals and no one's been able to help you, it's not that they don't want to help you. It genuinely is perhaps like me. They haven't had a patient who's introduced them to the concept and then gone and explored and educated themselves. And so it, it really requires parents to just be educated and informed because they're going to need to to drive the conversation with those health professionals as much as we are trying to do that as well. Yeah, well, I, and that's true. Even as a midwife, I work with babies. This was not something that we learned at university. I didn't even learn it in my time at the hospital. Yeah. And then the only reason I know really anything about it and helping with some kind of assessment is that my good my good friend and work wife is a lactation consultant and she taught me a bit of a crash course in a basic assessment and if this then refer on basically was the education I got um bees arrived hang on I'm just gonna let her in the room oh she's on Queensland time (laughs) hello friend you're there you are hi babe Sorry, I'm just editing. That's okay. We we've been going for for an hour already. Twelve thirty. We had to. I started early this week. I sent an email, but I realised it might not have been on your radar. I read it, but I just thought it was twelve thirty my time. I know. I I think I'm pretty sure I even put Sydney time. But it's fine. It's fine. We're deep in. We've just started tongue tie. We're kind of only. We're really just touching on what is a tongue tie. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll let people know you've arrived. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm Devo. I missed the baby. I'll just mute and let you. Um, B, this is Rena. Rena. Yeah, B. I was going to say hi, Rena. Hello. <laughs> I just randomly came in. I'm, I'm like, I really thought I'd nailed it. <laughs> you did nail Queensland time. <laughs> oh no, she's so frozen. <laughs> You are so frozen. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. There we go. All right. Okay, so we were just talking about um, the fact that not really any health professional has been given the good proper information about 
diagnosing tongue ties at the very, very least. So it's this, I think each healthcare provider takes initiative to learn and understand it because, like you said, somebody arrives with it. And, and you know, for me as a midwife, when women are saying, what's going on with my baby's latch? Why are my nipples so damaged? Why, you know, this baby's not transferring milk. You're forced to get an understanding of what tongue tie is because I'm often the first point of call and need to refer people on to the next step. So what are the signs and symptoms that your baby might have an oral tie? Okay, I'll run through a bunch of them, but it is quite complex. And I would say just because your baby might have a couple of these doesn't mean that they have an oral tie. So just, you know, take it for what it is. I think in infants particularly, we see a poor or shallow latch. So like feeding on the end of the nipple. Frequently, they'll slide off the nipple. So they won't be able to maintain that latch. Um, or they'll gum or kind of chew on the end. And then we see things like nipple trauma as a result. Frequent gagging or choking. So sometimes sometimes it's letdown related, but other times it's actually they're not able to lift that tongue up like we talked about and actually stop or compress that flow of milk. And as a result, they kind of get flooded and then um, are gagging and choking, which then can also lead to increased vomiting because if they've taken air in during that process, they're then going to vomit that up. Um, increased colic or fussiness or wind generally, again, because of that process of air-induced um, reflux, which we touched on in the last episode. Really long nursing periods beyond what's kind of normal or acceptable for that age. Frequently falling asleep is another big one. So obviously we expect a baby to fall asleep in that really early postpartum period, but if that persists, then often it's a baby that's is really fatigued, working very hard and not able to effectively transfer milk and so they just fall asleep. Um, you then often see short sleep episodes as a result because they've snacked, they've fallen asleep and then they're awake because they haven't been satisfied. So that kind of pattern can occur. Babies are often not able to hold a pacifier or a dummy in their mouth. Again, they cannot elevate the tongue enough to kind of maintain that suction. Sometimes you'll see green stools. That one is a little bit controversial. It can be other things as well. So, again, a good breastfeeding assessment is needed to work that out. Often they can pull off the breast. So, again, it's part of that regulation. Either they're fussy because they're not able to extract the milk as effectively as they'd like or they're getting too much and they can't slow the flow. Congested breathing and snoring, again, linked a little bit to that reflux vomiting kind of coming up uh some of them do they have a habit of mouth breathing more so yeah mouth posture mouth breathing yep um what else do we see sometimes in older kind of if we're looking at say transition to solids around six months they can be very um, messy eaters dribble do a lot of persistent tongue thrusting and they can be very noisy feeders as well yeah so it's a whole range of things that lots of babies present with. Not every baby who presents with these symptoms is going to have restricted um, oral ties, but certainly if they're there, we want to do an assessment and, you know, rule it out. That's the baby. Then the mum will also usually present with things like cracked, bleeding nipples or that real lipstick-shaped nipple when they come off because it's being compressed up onto the palate just behind the gum. Yeah, there, and it looks looks like it's being pinched. Correct. It literally looks like the head of a lipstick when it comes out after a feed. Yeah. Yep. Blanched nipples sometimes. So, you know, white nipples after a feed, painful feeding, obviously, that would probably be the main symptom that mums present with. Uh, often by the time they've come to see us, they're on nipple shields. So they've they've come out of hospital and they're on nipple shields. Um, and then... If we see them a little bit later on, often they've got a history of like recurrent mastitis or blocked ducts or just poor drainage. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, sometimes, I don't know if, it, if this is a usual thing, but the babies who I've found have ties, sometimes they don't gain as much weight each week and that's just to do with their ability to transfer the amount of milk. And, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's true. It is a journey and it's different for every mum and baby. I think you classically do see low weight and low milk supply, 
But equally, I have babies who are thriving because mum's got a really abundant supply, but they're terribly ineffective at transferring milk. And those babies, we will often see between three and four months of age as kind of that milk supply transitions and from being more um, maternally, hormonally driven to baby driven, their inability to pull that milk out will often see that drop in supply and a drop in weight at that point. So if if people take nothing else away from this, know that just because your baby is gaining weight doesn't mean that there isn't restriction in the oral um, function. Yes. And who, so obviously I think in hospitals they don't really diagnose babies with tongue ties. It's the journey that parents go on after they leave hospital, after they've given birth, or if you are fortunate enough to have a private midwife who's with you for six weeks after you've had your baby, which is where my work is, then women are just left on their own. And as you said, not many health professionals actually really fully understand tongue tie or are trained to identify it. And so I don't think a GP is a great stop. The local community services, you might land on a really great practitioner who's done the work, who's done the thinking about this. But I do think parents are left to find out this stuff on their own and they go on a wild goose chase to find the right information. So I want to take this actual opportunity now to direct people to Rena's. Rena's got a tongue-tie educational course or program. It's it's I think it's a place to start if you're not sure if this is what's happening for your baby. It'll cost you less than going out to seeing a practitioner to actually purchase this course. It's um, where can they find it, Rena? At drrenamurray.com. Drrenamurray.com. I'll put that in the show notes. But if this is what you suspect might be happening for your baby, then start there. You can do it at home. You'll find out probably more than most healthcare professionals know anyway, and it might give you a really clear direction for where to go next. Because this is even a challenge for me as a midwife is where do I send this person now? I think this baby's got a tongue tie. But who else could parents go to if they suspect their baby has a tongue tie? Who should they see? Yeah, that is a great question. Um as we talked about, because it's not standard practice to be trained in it in any discipline, and it certainly it wasn't when I did my lactation training, you're not guaranteed that every even lactation consultant you go and see is able to do a comprehensive oral assessment as well as a breastfeeding assessment. I think the best thing to do is ask, are you trained in oral assessments for tongue tie? And if they say yes, they know what they're talking about very likely. And if they don't, then hopefully they'll be able to refer you on. Um The point of me developing that course was to try to help more parents kind of cut through the confusion. It's really hard. We get asked the same questions over and over. And if I had one goal, it would be that oral assessments would just be done as part of the newborn check in hospital Um, because then we would not have all of these mums coming out who really want to breastfeed but, you know, in terrible pain and distress because perhaps there is an oral tie or maybe there isn't. But either way, we just need to, you know, assess it rule it in, rule it out, and then move on. So, yeah, I think it it depends where you are geographically. You might have a great lactation consultant. You might have an osteo who's trained who can help you. You might have a chiro. You might have a really great dentist who is able to do it. I know in Sydney we've got got paediatric dentists, we've got general dentists, we've got paediatric surgeons, um, We've got ENTs, like it's a really, and speech pathologists, it's a really diverse mix of people who are able to work in this space. And you really need to see, I suppose, someone who is trained appropriately, but also is at the right age for your baby. So obviously, you know, breastfeeding family are going to need to see a lactation consultant and do the, the breastfeeding assessment because a primary healthcare practitioner can diagnose, a lactation consultant can assess, but cannot technically diagnose the tie so you need to then go and see a gp pediatrician or dentist as an osteo we are primary healthcare providers and so i sit in a in between space because i hold those two qualifications but it's really about who is in your area that is is going to be most able to help you and some of the forums online are good for directing people to experienced providers in their area um yeah 
Yeah, other parents who've been through it, you know, they can save you a lot of time and drama trying to find the right person. There is, and, and this is my other bugbear. I feel like Hang on, Mel, I have to actually say it's not, there are some wonderful midwives and doctors actually who do assess in hospital mm-hmm. and it is part of the newborn check for some of them. So, yeah, I really hear that and, and, and I see it too, that people feel really lost and it doesn't get diagnosed in hospital, but I've also worked in places where people have been excellent at this like really excellent and I'm talking 10 years ago they were excellent in it so just a shout out because I feel like there's some people who are probably listening who who were like hang on I do that and I do that really well or actually we have people that I work with who do it really well so just just a little love note to them because yes I hear that many people feel lost in their journey but there are some excellent people that work in the system who are great at recognising and or referring for this. I think you're right, Rena. We should, it should be as part of a normal newborn assessment. I mean, we're checking every baby's heart, for example, and they have, you know, there's the tiniest chance that there's going to be something wrong with that, but we're not checking every baby's mouth as a routine thing. Well, we are. It is a part of the newborn assessment. It is meant to be. When we are checking it, I don't full, like full tongue tie assessment. Well, it's it, the job of the midwife is to do a, a full assessment of the whole body and recognize if there's any issues in conjunction with the story that's going along. So, yeah, I wouldn't do a hundred percent what somebody who's going to treat a tongue tie would do, but it's looking at the whole picture, looking at the mother as well and going, okay, this, this, there's something here that doesn't look right. Or if it does look right, but there's just a piece that's not adding up, that that's our epic clinical skills as a midwife to listen to that intuition and be guided by it and go, okay, I can't see anything here but that's out of my scope, I'm going to refer. I think when we make mistakes is when we don't listen, you know, as as midwives. So if we're not listening to the whole story that includes the mother and the baby, then then we miss things. So, yeah, if it doesn't look right. But it is, we're meant to look at the tongue. We're meant to look at the palate. We're meant to look at the mouth. We're meant to look at, um, and not just like tongue ties, like we're meant to assess the frenulum um, and all those parts and then look at the feeding picture as well. That's part of a proper newborn assessment. You don't have to be a genius and you don't have to be an expert tongue-tied diagnostic person. You just have to be somebody who's aware and goes, there's something not right in this picture. Let's call in people who can help. Yeah, totally. And if you're a care provider, you need to know who those people are to refer to. Like that's the number one skill of being a midwife is work to your scope and then refer that's what makes us epic at what we do is is being able to refer and collaborate we don't all have to be experts on it but we do have to take time and treat every person as an individual and see the whole story and for and i think the system doesn't allow for that so just a lot of love for people who want to work like that and can't. So, you know, just, yeah, a lot of love to the midwives and, and doctors out there trying to do it that just there's no capacity for it because there's not enough time. Yeah. So if you're, if if health professionals, so what, what I'm hearing though is that it, there's a spattering of skills and there's massive variation across professions of who can and who can't diagnose or even identify a tongue tie. So if for health professionals listening, what are we looking for if we suspect a baby has a tongue or oral ties? What can we do at a basic level to assess if that's what's actually happening? I mean, I think you could really quite easily learn one of the standardised assessment tools, which is the Atlas. Um, we might put it in the link at the end. And you can get pretty good. You can assess every baby according to that criteria. There are a few standardized assessment tools um, and every baby you see, you'd pretty quickly learn what you're looking for. But it, it's a balance of how is it working? So doing a suck assessment, 
as well as looking at what does it look like. And when we combine those two things together, we get a score that indicates whether we should do a phrenectomy or not. So Mm -hmm. I think that's quite simple for any health professional to start with. So we'll put that that tool. If you are on the mailing list for this podcast, you get access to a resource folder every every week we send out an email and if and you get access to a resource folder. So we will put that assessment tool in the resource folder for any healthcare provider who wants to have an understanding of a way that you can get good at. And and you made a really great point. First learning what normal looks like if you assess every single baby and you go right all of them could do this that's great the minute one of them can't do that you're hyper attuned to that issue yeah what's that tool called again um atlas assessment of lingual frenulum function assessment of lingual frenulum Frenulum function function. we'll put it in the resource folder so that is the direction you can go in as a healthcare provider. That's your starting point. And so if then you go, okay, that's not normal, where do you refer to? Again, it depends on what what health provider you are and who is available in your area. I think you made a really valid point. There's some really amazing health professionals across all disciplines working in this space and some are in hospital and some are outside of hospital and so it really you know you've got pediatricians who are doing really great scissor releases or scalpel releases because that's their skill and their tool of choice you've got ENTs who are doing it operatively and then you've got dentists who are using laser and I think the argument around the tool is less helpful for parents it's really about who is in your area who has undergone further training and is highly skilled that we could, you know, send you to. And that'll look different depending on where you are in Australia or, you know, globally. It, it's it's not a helpful argument to say the type of provider. It's really just about the network in your area. But it could be a dentist, could be a paediatrician. Could uh, be a GP, could be uh, in Australia, they're probably the main ones, or an ENT. Yeah, in other countries, other um, health professionals have got rights to perform the release that we don't necessarily have in Australia. And there are some tongue-tie clinics, like there are some dentists, for example, you know, I've got a particular service, that's where I refer everybody to, that's where one of the lactation consultants in our area did their training on tongue-tie and sort of down the great vine said, this is a really good clinic. Because one of my concerns is, is if you send a baby to be diagnosed at a clinic that does the releases, it does just every baby get a release? or is there some, you know, do, do they go to these clinics and go, oh, no, your baby doesn't need a release? That's my concern, is that when you're taking them to the places that does the releases to get the diagnosis, that I think maybe they could get an unnecessary release. Yeah, I think that's a common concern and there's probably definitely, you know, weight to that. I think In how I would approach an assessment, I want to make sure that I've done a breastfeeding assessment and an oral assessment before I send them anywhere. Now, I'm not affiliated with anyone in particular, so I send people based on the outcome of those results and then wherever geographically it works for them that I am confident in a provider in their area. And I think if you can cover all of that, you've got a really comprehensive assessment and diagnosis, and that gives parents a bit more confidence in actually having it done as opposed to, yes, seeing someone who hasn't actually covered, say, in this context, the breastfeeding side of things. But equally, when we mentioned speech, you want to be going to see a speech pathologist who is trained in that space to actually determine whether the function at that point is normal or pathological. Mm. And and for parents playing at home, I think it's very possible that you'll jump from a through a few practitioners before you get the full picture and actually come to the point of having it corrected, it might not be a one-stop shop option, unfortunately. Yes, that's very common and confusing and really challenging for parents. And I think there's no simple answer for how we fix that. Again, it comes back to if if we all had a standardised tool for assessment and we were all doing the same thing, then we'd probably get more consistent results and less conflicting information, but that's not where we sit at the moment, I don't think. Um, Can you, do you know much about the procedure to have it corrected? Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something that 
parents often ask me like, well, how would they do it? And I'm like, well, there's, I mean, there's a few options that you already talked about the different tools, but can you describe what a correction of a tongue tie might be like for parents listening? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's really, they're releasing the fascia or the connective tissue at the floor of the mouth to allow the genioglossus or the muscle to actually, I suppose, be free and be able to move in the ranges of motion that it needs to for normal function. So they can do it with, as I said, scissors, scalpel or laser are the common tools of choice and it really does come down to the particular provider. I think you can, if you listen to a lot of the global experts and they're all in different fields, most of them would say it's about their skill as a provider in terms of executing a complete release as opposed to, yeah, whether it's done with scissors or not. Yeah. And they don't numb the area because it's their mouth, right? That is my understanding. It, I think it depends on who you see and what protocol they follow. Yeah. And the age of the baby, there's a whole range of things. Totally. And I've had clients who found the procedure to be a, an absolute non-issue. They went in, had it done, the baby fed, there was virtually no tears, like it was so straightforward and then others who were like oh my gosh it was terrible there was crying there was blood there was like you know and had a very dramatically different experiences yeah I think that can happen within the same like with the same provider I certainly have experienced um, that spectrum with patients some babies you wouldn't even know it was done and I think also some of the variability comes in in terms of whether they had a like a class four or a, depends which way you want to describe it basically, but a severe tongue tie all the way to the end, very obvious, and whether that was released um, and just that portion released. So the baby got some improved function, but maybe the the deeper fibers or the submucosal portion wasn't released. And so generally providers who are going to release all of that and do the submucosa, it's a bit more involved and often those ones you might see, um, yeah, a little bit more of a difficult response potentially, yeah. 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 And I think too, it really depends on the, like the family and how everyone's feeling. And so a beautiful thing you can do if it feels right for you, again, none of this you have to do, but you can actually talk to your baby about what's going to happen what's going to happen to them. And and I know this will be dependent on um, practitioners as well, but you can speak to the practitioner before it's done and say, you know, how do you feel about me being in the room? Because I know, you know, I've worked at places where it's like, no, parents weren't in the room, you know, and again, that's up to you and what feels right for you. Perhaps if you, if, if they're willing for people to be in the room or they're not willing for people to be in the room and that doesn't sit right with you, you don't have to go with them. Or if they are willing for people to be in the room but you don't want to, that's okay. Can the baby have somebody else to support them? And I think just remembering that our, our little baby, whilst they can't communicate with us in our language yet, they still communicate um, and they still have feelings. And so talking to them and letting them know what's going to happen to their body and actually talking to the body and letting the body know what's happening. Again, there's nothing wrong. There's no judgment with it any way that you go. It's just, hey, what would I actually like this procedure to look like for my family and what feels right for me what feels right for my baby and what and what can I actually do about it and I think yeah just talking to our babies I think we've been raised to like distract like nothing's happening look over there bang something happens to you like I'm just like getting images of my ears getting pierced like look at the shiny light boom ears pierced you know and like that can hold a lot of shock and then that and, and and the body can hold the trauma, not the mind. It's very different. The body holds the trauma very differently, but holds it. And that, that can be a flow-on effect then perhaps the follow-up procedures where you're still working with that connective tissue to stay open is really traumatic for the baby. And then it becomes traumatic for you. And then we have this vicious cycle because babies go off our energy. So just wanted to bring that in because it's I think it's important in this, really seeing the baby as a, as a person with feelings and mm-hmm. a body that's having something done to it yeah yeah absolutely you could completely just the whole different family scenario can completely change the experience of having it corrected um Rena, is there after the procedure's done is there ongoing work that the parents need to do with the baby or is that just the end of it yep great question so 
Yes. Again, the literature is still um, not forthcoming, I don't think, in terms of the right way um, to do the aftercare. You will find a lot of providers will say, yes, we want you to stretch that wound for about three to four weeks post-chronectomy to try to encourage wound healing in such a way that you get elongation of those fibres in kind of the the vertical plane so we're not getting a nice web of connective tissue that kind of takes the baby back to square one. But it that isn't easy. We've worked with, I would say, thousands of families through that and it's really challenging and I think... I always approach tongue ties in the same way that I would do the rest of musculoskeletal medicine, and that's conservative first, and then, you know, failing that, we would refer for surgical if necessary. And so I think we're definitely not going to send every baby that comes through our door, and we're definitely going to look at the the family dynamics, as you mentioned, B, about, I suppose, yeah, how that's going to work for the whole family and whether that's the right decision or not. And for lots of families, it isn't appropriate. And knowing that I think is really important because just because you see something doesn't mean that we need to intervene. Um, We really do need to understand what's right for that whole family. It can be looked at later if it's a problem. And I would say just because it's present doesn't mean that it's going to be a problem later on. We certainly do not have enough data to suggest that. So, yeah, being really careful about who we refer and when is important because if we're asking them to do the aftercare and they need to stretch that sort of every six hours, that that's a lot and and some families don't cope with it. But I would also say to those families, and I, I do say to them, it's okay, like we will support you through this. And so sometimes it is that body work afterward is not appropriate because that baby doesn't need anyone else in their mouth. They just need time on the breast. And so we're going to support that family in one way. And then another family, we might be able to do some body work and we might be able to get those stretches done. And it really, I think, is important just to to work with the families on what's right for them at that time. It's not a black and white aftercare process yet we do not have enough studies to say one way or the other definitively do nothing or do all of the stretches yeah right and and I guess and we should say I don't think we said it that not every tongue tie needs to be corrected no is there a is there a a criteria that helps clinicians know which ones to correct and which ones not to well yes like there's there's a visual criteria but then you need to come back to that functional assessment as well because just looking at structure structure means a lot of oral ties will be released just based on what they look like. But if there's no compromised function, then why would you intervene? So yeah. it's that really comprehensive assessment that's necessary, I think. So it's more about that if the function is impacted, that is more meaningful than if you if it looks like something dramatic. Yeah, and there's different grades, you said, too. That would be all part of, of having it diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious about what causes tongue ties, and I know this can be quite the controversial topic. Do we know anything about how and why they develop? Definitively, no. We definitely know that they're on the rise. Why they're on the rise, though, is a bit, I think there's a lot of reasons and no definitive answer on that either. I think genetics, definitely. We know that they're more common um, in boys. And that's just what the data is starting to show us. We know that they develop in utero and that there's a hereditary, a possible hereditary link. But really, the causes, there's lots of theories. They're being documented back even as far as the 1600s. So it's not a new concept. It's just that I think probably the increase in scientific um, study, as well as I think social awareness, and then genetics is probably seeing that increase, as well as breastfeeding rates have increased you know so we went through that period of in the 1800s of not not a lot of people breastfeeding formula was introduced and so we found a way around feeding difficulties but as breastfeeding rates have increased it probably has a part to play in terms of why we're seeing more but it's lots of reasons but yeah the exact cause no folic acid iodine evolution they're all being researched but nothing is definitive yet yeah, so parents can't, you can't blame yourself basically. You're like, oh my no. God, because I know a, a lot of my clients talk about the connection between folic acid supplementation and the MTHFR gene and that somehow that there's some interplay, but you're saying there's there's not definitive research on that. Yeah. No, and also a tongue tie, the um, cadaver studies are showing that it's not a midline defect like spina bifida or a neuro tube defect it is just a restriction in the fascial tissue or the connective tissue of the floor of the mouth which then kind of leads a little bit away from that folic acid theory yes yeah 
And the other, yeah, because that's what I've noticed is when I first started, it was very rare that, you know, you'd, you'd vaguely hear about tongue tie, but now it feels like so many babies have tongue tie and everyone's got a tongue tie story, you know, in their friendship group. So it's really charged. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's some of the context of what's happening with tongue tie is it's, a, it, it's kind of snowballing and the and practitioners aren't keeping up. With yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think it's hard, past experience, and, and given that we are seeing a hereditary link, some families have already had two or three boys who've had it, and so they're, their natural response is, I just want to get on top of this and out in front so that I don't end up, you know, three months down the track and dealing with this. But I would say it's not a it's not a quick fix and it's not an easy solution. It rarely is a quick fix. It takes time. It works well when there is significant restriction in function uh, and we're trying to maintain breastfeeding in the diet, but it's not always the answer that people are looking for. And sometimes the trauma for the family is greater than the perceived benefit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we've kind of covered all the questions I had in in a roundabout way. I didn't have any further questions, but B, did you have anything you wanted to ask about tongue tie? No, there's nothing I want to ask. I just want to say that I think often the experiences that families have around this can be really traumatic and to please reach out for support and so just planting that seed if anyone wants to water it that you can actually heal from that time and that often we hold a lot of feelings around that postnatal time being robbed from us when we've had to experience something like this that may mean that breastfeeding didn't look how you wanted it to or your postnatal period didn't look how you wanted it to and there actually needs a space um, to be heard and for the feelings around that to be felt because it because it's big. So if you're listening to this and you've experienced it or perhaps this becomes your journey um, or is your journey at the moment, please reach out for emotional support amongst it because that can do wonders for the whole experience as well. I really think that when we nourish the mind, the mind nourishes the body and, and, and helps us to be able to care for our little ones going through something like this. Yeah, totally. I did think while you were talking about thought of a question, actually, because we talked about the possibility of having it treated surgically, but are there other treatment options? Hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, um, certainly. <laughs> Depends, again, what their age is, but as an osteo, we will treat them first and we will try to improve, you know, cranial nerve function to the jaw, to the oral structures. You can't stretch the frenum itself, but you can definitely improve function to the muscles. And so that would be how we would approach it as an osteo. But I think it depends on the age. I'm sure there are chiropractors out there working in this space and physios who probably would have a similar approach in terms of musculoskeletal. Um, but then you've got speech patho pathologists who are working on improving, you know, feeding strategies to improve um, oral tone, but then also just, you know, how do we get around that? Can we get that baby feeding? And very often quite successfully. Um, and then they're also working in the speech space, obviously, a bit later on. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And you now the beautiful osteo who's treated me and both my boys, um, she's a really good friend of mine and we're often, you know, learning from each other and each other's clinical experiences but she's had babies that have never gone on to have surgery and she's also supported babies in between treatments. So after they've had surgery, really supporting and nourishing their body. And some of those cases haven't needed to go on and have further things that perhaps were thought, well, that, that were suggested that were going to be needed in the long run. So, um, and especially, you know, sometimes there can be more to the situation than what's initially picked up. And if that gets treated, um then the then the other issues like you know feeding can resolve so I think there's so much about babies in that newborn stage that we really just don't understand when it comes to what they experience during birth and postnatally and how that affects their body and the body's function and I really see really gentle therapies like osteopathy and gentle chiro approaches can do absolute wonders and that's always for me and that's just a personal thing my first point of call 
But again, it's such an individual thing. It's got to be what feels right for you. Some people want the most medicalized route and others don't. You know, it, it is a journey. It's and it's about finding out what's right for you. And sometimes what we do with our first trip child we perhaps wouldn't do with our second or perhaps we do it even faster so it really is an individual thing totally and sorry go ahead Rena what you can say oh, I was just going to say I think we touched on that in the last episode I think it's really important you're exactly right there are lots of reasons why a baby can have difficulty sucking and it's not just to do with a tongue tie and so to release that without actually addressing all of the other problems and potential cranial nerve deficits does that baby a disservice. So, yeah. And for women who are having feeding difficulties, breastfeeding difficulties, the people who are experts in helping with breastfeeding difficulties are lactation consultants. And then this follow-up work can be done with osteopaths if it's not a tongue tie. But keeping the dyad together, the, the mother and the baby and and seeing how their symptoms co- coincide and how they interact with each other is the important part here. So, which I think is where maybe some of the other practitioners might be lacking. So, if you just see a pediatrician who's solely focused on your baby, or a dentist who's solely focused on your baby, or an ENT or whoever, it's important that both are considered. And so, lactation consultant can be an excellent first step for any breastfeeding issue, and then they can be sort of the the gateway to exploring what that issue could be. So if you're having trouble breastfeeding, like everyone has said, it's not necessarily because there's a tongue tie. There's a, there's a whole, mus- like the mouth is a massive muscular structure and it could be an issue with any of that. So yes, I think immediately jumping to tongue tie could could send you spiraling into that journey. And yeah, I guess what I'm offering is that if you've got breastfeeding issues, potentially next steps could be a lactation consultant before considering surgery and all these things. Yeah. And remember that the mum is involved in that process. So we need to look at, you know, what's going on with the mum and her milk supply. It's not just all about the baby. 100%. Awesome. All right. That has been this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. We talked about tongue tie. Uh, Rena's course is available at drrenamurray.com. I'm going to put all the details for that in the show notes below. We're also going to pack the resource folder full of information on tongue tie that Rena's got actually the resources from that course. We're going to jump into the into the resource folder along with information about that assessment tool for health professionals who are listening and wondering what that tool was. So thanks for being here, guys. Tongue Tide's controversial. If you've got heaps more information, we'd love constructive advice and info. And we will see you in the next week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. Bye. Awesome. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, Fee, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs>